let me get things going. I want to introduce today's moderator, John Schumacher, who teaches a course in Kids Lit at Rutgers University and is also ambassador of school libraries for Scholastic Book Fairs. Without further ado, it's all yours, John. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone out there in the virtual audience. I am so excited to be here today with all of you and with Kate DiCamillo. <laughs> I, I will never forget the first time that I heard Kate DiCamillo's laugh in person. I did not know it when I first heard it that it was coming from Kate DiCamillo, but it sounded like such a wonderful infectious laugh that I looked around to see from whom it was coming and I noticed it was coming from Kate DiCamillo, one of my favorite authors. And I really, really, really wanted to go over and say hi to Kate, but I was too nervous. So instead, I walked by her multiple times, hoping that we would make eye contact and then I could say something, but I didn't have the courage. And so I went back to my gate. I was at the airport in New Orleans, waiting to fly home from the American Library Association's annual conference. And I sat there thinking about how in times of sadness, Kate DiCamillo's books offered so much laughter into my life and so much hope into my life and so much solace into my life. And more importantly, I thought about how her perfect sentences had created such love on my students' hearts, had tattooed such love and hope on my students' hearts. And I wanna share with you three sentences that I thought about when I was sitting there in the airport. The first is from Because of Wind Dixie, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. And Kate, I wrote the sentences on the back, so I do not mess them up. So the first one, from Because of Winn-Dixie is it's hard not to immediately fall in love with a dog who has a good sense of humor. The second sentence I thought about was from Mercy Watson to the rescue. I love introducing this series to kindergartners and this was always my favorite sentence to read aloud to them. Mercy felt warm inside as if she had just eaten toast with a great deal of butter on it. And I imagine everyone out in the audience finished that sentence with a great deal of butter on it. And the last I thought about was a passage from the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane. Open your heart. Someone will come, someone will come for you, but first you must open your heart. And because of KHD Camillo's picture books and early readers and novels, Many of us have opened our hearts. As Kate says, we opened the suitcase of our hearts. She shows us the love and the hope that stories can provide. And please join me in welcoming two-time Newberry medalist, Kate DiCamillo, to the virtual stage. Hi, Kate. John, 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 thank you, John. I, or Mr. Shu, I should call you. Oh, no, no, John, my name is John. You, you and I believe so much in that, that uh, I was thinking when you were reading about Mercy that that's uh, how she felt warm inside like she had eaten a piece of toast with a great deal of butter on it. But that's the way, that's the way a good book makes me feel too, warm yeah, inside warm that way. And, and I think that right now, more than ever, but always that feeling is just so 
necessary. It's what gets us through that that feeling of comfort, you know, and that's and that's we always cool. like just saying your name brings comfort to me because I think <laughs> about all of your stories and all of your characters. And I have to share something with you. As you know, Kate, I love standing in front of 300, 400 kids and talking about stories. I love standing on a stage surrounded by school librarians. That, that's where I really, really thrive. But virtual is hard for me. And so when, when I was sent home on March 15th, I knew I was going to have to do a lot of virtual events. So I had to create something to bring comfort to my life. So this is what I did. In my closet over there, I found this box, Kate, from my childhood, this beaten up box. And this is the box that I used to use as a child to play library with. It's filled with library cards. And so what I do when I come into my office and I only do virtual events in this room, I only use it for virtual events, I open the box. And the thing that's popping out is a note from you. And it says, Dear John, thank you for helping connect us through stories. And I always read that before I turn on Zoom. And then I look at this photo of me when I was in the second grade, reading wow. my favorite book in the second grade, Oliver and Company, the novelization. And then the last thing, Kate, that I look at is this movie ticket stub from when I saw Home Alone in the year 1991. And then I can do my job. So thank you. Did you do all of that today? Yes, I did. I did. It's, it's my ritual. I come in, I open it up, I read the Kate note, I look at second grade me, I look at the movie stub ticket, and then I'm centered and I can do it. All right. John, you're, I'm in your hands. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so Kate, my first question for you is actually, well, it's not a question for me. It's from two children in St. Paul, Minnesota, not far from where you live. And the question is about the latest book in the Tales from Deco Who Drive series. But before I ask the question, could you yeah. read aloud a passage from this wonderful book? Yeah, and I'll set it up a little bit. So um, this is... Um, uh, Stella Endicott and the Anything is Possible poem. And um, it is, uh, as you can see, Mercy Watson is in the story, but it's mostly a story about Stella and how, and the boy that she sits next to in school named Horace Broom, who is um, kind of a know-it-all. And, mm -hmm. and they, the two of them uh, get into a lot of power struggles and end up in the principal's office. And then they end up, um, after the principal's office getting uh, inadvertently locked in the janitor's supply closet. And they, they are still arguing with each other even when this happens. So I'm just gonna read a little bit from that part. We could pretend that this is a story, said Stella. We could pretend that an old and irritated wizard who plays the accordion has put a spell on us and the spell has temporarily entombed us. And all we need to do now is to figure out how to undo the spell. Except that's not what happened, said Horace Broom. What happened is that the door to the closet must lock automatically. And so we're locked in and we can't reach the light and no one knows where we are and we will never be found, Stella sighed. In the darkness, Horace sighed too. Do you ever get tired of yourself, said Stella. Yes, said Horace. Don't you ever imagine things, said Stella. No, said Horace, not really. My mother says that I might be a tad too literal. What does that mean, said Stella. Well, literal is the opposite of metaphorical. Literal means seeing things exactly as they are and things right now look very dark. 
Sometimes, said Stella, when I'm afraid or when my brother, brother Frank is afraid or worried, he worries a lot, we'll hold hands. It always makes us both feel better. She was quiet for a minute. Do you want to hold hands, Horace Broom? Yes, said Horace. Stella put her hand out into the darkness. She found Horace's hand. It was small and scrabbly. She thought, Horace Broom's hand is a hermit crab without its shell. And that's a metaphor. <laughs> she gave the hermit crab hand a squeeze. Okay, oh, I'm ready for the question. That was perfect. I'm giving you a round of applause. And well, we all kind of feel like we might be entombed right now, right? We're in small and spaces and, and we have to stay there, so. And, and the passage that you read goes perfectly with the question, so thank you. And you did, Kate did not know the question. I did not, no. So this question comes from Stephanie's children in St. Paul, Minnesota, and this is what they want to know. What would Stella Suzanne with one Z Endicott's <laughs> metaphor for life be during this pandemic? What would be their metaphor for life during this pandemic? Well, can I say, let's just take a, a pause to say, John, you know as well as I do, that is a top notch, a number one kind of question. And, and also it does the beautiful thing of putting me and my verbal skills on the spot. So what would the metaphor, what would Stella's metaphor be for this time? This, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do what already happened in the book. It's like being, it's like being inadvertently locked in the janitor's supply closet. And, and what happens with that passage, for those of you who don't know the book, and I bet that Stephanie's kids do, but for those who don't know the book, is they're sitting there in the dark holding hands and, and Stella thinks, oh, this makes, this makes me, it makes it, it's almost like we're making light holding hands. And then she realizes that something above them is glowing. And the janitor has painted a glow in the dark of the whole solar system on the ceiling of the closet. And so th that also makes us a metaphor for this time in that if we are in the dark and we take each other's hands and if we look up we can see that the whole universe is, yeah. is still glowing. So that's an extended metaphor. How that? <laughs> that was perfect. That was a hard. That was a hard question, Stephanie's children. Very, very good question. They actually had two questions. The second one is that they love the Mercy Watson series. They love toast, but they love toast with a great deal of peanut butter on it. They want to know why Mercy Watson likes toast with a great deal of butter on it. And well, not peanut butter. <laughs> well, I too am a, a, am a fan of peanut butter. Um, but the whole, all of Mercy Watson started with um, a friend who got into my, a brand new, my first brand new car with a gigantic piece of toast that had a ton of butter on it and started eating it and spraying these greasy crumbs everywhere. And I asked her to stop and she didn't. Instead, she started talking about how good the toast was and how it, it, it had butter spread all the way to the edges. It had a great deal of butter. So that that is where all of Mercy actually like gelled and started was with and butter toast. So I always think of that story now. I always think of the time I went to your visited your house and you were in my car and I was waving at all your neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, what are you doing?
<laughs> you you were on Decamu Drive. That's where you were. Like, well, that's just what you do. If you're on Kate <laughs> DiCamillo's street, you wave at everyone. <laughs> so, Kate, over the years, you and I, and I mentioned this in the introduction of you, we've talked a lot about how stories can tattoo comfort, they can tattoo hope, they can tattoo solace on hearts. And last night, I reread your uh, afterword that's in the 20th anniversary edition of Because of Winn-Dixie, and I want to just read aloud a passage from it. In it, you write, I knew that reading books could provide community and comfort and love. I did not know that writing books would do the same. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I can. It actually makes me um, tear up a little bit to hear you read it. So I was a kid who found uh, solace and comfort and joy and community and books and, and reading. And, and I was aware, aware very early on uh, of needing the stories and needing the books. And, and then when I, I finally sat down to start to write, um, you know, you write alone. Uh, there's no other way to do it really. You're alone in, in the darkness of your office. And um, you, you sit there and you, you make up a story and, and, and then the story goes out into the world and it's got my heart in it and other people respond with their hearts. And so it, it, it became this thing where the world became exponentially larger. Um, and so that my community became even bigger through me sitting there alone telling stories. And I was in no way prepared for how people would open their hearts to Winn-Dixie and Opal and how I always feel like it was like I walked through a, a door into a, a, a bright room and I just didn't know that that was gonna happen. That's so beautiful. And you, you mentioned in your response of writing in the dark. And about a week ago, I read an interview with Dolly Parton. And in the interview, I thought of you because Dolly Parton shares in the interview that she gets up at 3 a.m. every single day. I read and, that too. But and because but you get up at five though, right? Not, yeah, not and I okay. thought, man, Dolly is shaming me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that you read it as well. Yeah. I love Dolly Parton. She's, she's so, so amazing. But yeah, she gets up at three, she prays, and then she does all her writing. And I thought of you because she talks about how the world's not awake yet and her inner critic is not as loud at that time. And so during the pandemic, have you kept with getting up at five, writing very, very early your two pages and then going about your other business? Is that something you still do? That is something I still do. I still, I, 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 I get up when it's dark, which is very easy to do now that it's mm -hmm. winter. So I'm usually up um, at about, right now by about 5.30. And for the first, I don't know, like 100 days of the pandemic, I wrote every morning um, because I was I was doing uh, these little videos on Facebook. Yeah, they're so good. Thank you for just, doing that. Thank you for doing your writing. I series. wanted other people to know that there was comfort to be found in telling a story. And, and, and that if this was something that you had thought that you might want to do, now's a good time to try it. And so because I was encouraging people to make it a daily task, I felt like I had to 
um, make sure that I was there too. That was part of the, you know, the contract. Um, and so, and then after those hundred days, there's also this thing that happens for me where, and travel used to do this for me. Um, you know, I would write, 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 and then you go out into the world and the world fills you up. You can feel very does, much yeah. like you're a well, right? And you can feel like the well is filling up when you're out in the world. And so I thought I need to take a break from making myself do this every day and just go out and be in the world. And I was walking every day, but then I just put everything down and let the well fill up a little bit. Yeah, I have found that to be one of the most challenging things right now is that like I went out into the world every single week, met 2000 students every single week and I was filled with all of their light. And then I had light to go out the next week and share it again. And so I have found I've had to do some different rituals during the pandemic. Walking has helped me so, so much. Walking so I is so much. great. Like, and it's, but it's, also the books, you know, it's just like I go, I get the light and the comfort from, from the books. So books and walking have saved me. So then the, the next question is from the audience. This is from Deb in Oregon. And her question is, I've been thinking about something the owner of my local bookstore once said to me, quote, if you want kids to develop empathy, all you have to do is read a lot of wonderful fiction, end quote. My students will be working online all this school year. How can I use books to give them what they need socially and emotionally? Um, well, John, I'm gonna take a stab at this and then I'm gonna toss it back to you because I think you know as much as I do, but I wanna start off by talking about empathy and I'm so glad. Deb, right, Deb? Uh, Deb, Deb in Oregon. Um, that you brought it up because this is something that, I mean, we all, we know now that it has been scientifically proven that, that, that reading develops empathy. So then how do you, how do you, um, in this really fraught time when we needed more than ever, how did, how do you work with your students and your own kids and yourself? To, to access that empathy. And I, I think that I am such a huge advocate for reading out loud and, and, and it still works on Zoom because I hear mm -hmm. from, I get letters from teachers telling me that they didn't think that it was gonna work to read the books aloud on Zoom and they can still feel the kids listening. So I think the most powerful thing that you can do is to read the book aloud and and then people can talk the kids can talk about how they feel about the book you don't ask them questions mm -hmm. um you let them talk about how they feel reading the book that's what i think okay john yeah, no my, my response is the same and it's something i talk about in school visits i tell the students that i believe in research supports this that reading is a workout for your heart. And I tell them about how in the year 1988, my second grade teacher, Miss Belinder, read aloud Charlotte's Web. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a teacher cry because of a read aloud and experience emotion through story. And it was so eye opening to me. And in that moment, I remember sitting there in the second grade going, wow, like she's showing us right now, not only the power of this book, but the power of the read aloud. And I love that the copy of this book I'm holding says 60th anniversary edition forward by Kate D. Camillo. So Kate, I know we talked the other day that you might wanna read aloud a passage from Charlotte's Web today. 
Are you still up for doing that? Yeah, I've got it right here. And, and, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I have, and you know, because of that introduction, and maybe I should talk about this before I read, that um, I, I, as I said earlier, I was a kid who, who lived for books and loved to read, um, but uh, Charlotte's Web was not a book that I read when I was a kid because um, I had read Black Beauty. And uh, the, the horse in Black Beauty suffered so terribly that I thought I cannot ever again check out a book with an animal on the cover, which is funny because that means that- Because yours all do. Me. Yeah, I wouldn't read any of my books. Um, but, but so I would look in the spin rack at the library and I would see Wilbur's face on there. And I, I would think something terrible is gonna happen to this pig. And I just couldn't bear to think about it. And so it wasn't until I was in a, a writing workshop and uh, a, the teacher said, you have no business writing for children unless you read Charlotte's Web. And, and then she quoted the first line of the book, which you know, yes. where is Papa going, going with that ax? And I thought it's Ooh. gonna be even worse than I thought. <laughs> We're starting with an ax. And so I, I read it, I fell in love with it. I reread it every year. And, and the reason that I thought of doing it um, for this conversation um, was because I had gone to get it out, to look for a passage that I had, uh, uh, in the middle of the night, I, I thought about this passage about two weeks ago. And I thought, I, I need to go down and find that pack and pack that that passage and read it to myself to comfort me. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and so I, and, and that's what I want to do here. There's so much comfort in these. Words. I, I want to share one thing, Kate, this yeah. copy is special as well, because I was once uh, Skyping with a class and I told them the story that I just shared with you. And I realized I didn't own my own copy. And so they, the school sent me a copy and all the kids wrote a little message. So oh. it's my extra special copy. You did not have a copy of Charlotte's Web? Well, because I'm one, Kate, that I buy a book and I just give it away. Yeah, I buy true. a book, I give it away. And so often I realize like I don't own a lot of my favorite books because I, I buy books to give them away. Right. Okay. <laughs> and that is true. I've witnessed that. What I've got here is um, the annotated Charlotte's Web, which is just spectacular. Um, and I'm on page 163 towards the end of the book. Your future is assured. You will live secure and safe, Wilbur. Nothing can harm you now. These autumn days will shorten and grow cold. The leaves will shake loose from the trees and fall. Christmas will come, then the snows of winter. You will live to enjoy the beauty of the frozen world. For you mean a great deal to Zuckerman and he will not harm you ever. Winter will pass. The days will lengthen. The ice will melt in the pasture pond. The song sparrow will return and sing. The frogs will awake. The warm wind will blow again. All these sights and sounds and smells will be yours to enjoy, Wilbur. This lovely world, these precious days. Oh, thank you. I, I love when you read aloud to us, Kate DiCamillo. Thank it's you, thank you, thank you. Such a comforting passage, isn't it? And, it and is. And a lot of times um, I can't get through it without crying, which goes back to your teacher 
And was it second grade? Second grade, yeah, Miss yeah, Belinda. And, and the great thing about that, when when you're a kid and, and you see your teacher moved um, uh, by a story that they're reading, is is it's not only it's that they become human. I remember when my mom uh, read Ribsy aloud to my brother and man, she she didn't cry. She laughed so hard that she cried. And it was, I remember in the moment, just being aware of seeing her as fully human in a way that I hadn't up until that point. Of course she was human, but she was my mother, but here, here she was. And so that's the other thing that happens when you read aloud is it's not only that you're connecting to the story, you're connecting to each other and in a different way, which provides comfort and it, and, and it also illumination. You can see each other better. Yeah, and when you were talking, I am, I'm gonna, I'm known for quoting Kate DiCamillo. So I'm going to quote you to yourself. A quote I always pull out of thin air is reading aloud binds us together in unexpected ways which I yes. think you, you shared in the Washington Post at the end of your reign as the National Ambassador of Young People's Literature. But that so beautifully articulates what I experience in the library every day and as a classroom teacher, that it binds you together in ways that you didn't expect. And I love that when you went out onto the road to talk about how stories connect us, you didn't think it was going, you were going to experience so much emotionally that you did. So thank you for always for always telling people about the power of the read aloud. And 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 it, it and the other thing, John, is that um, it, it does it, even I think on technology, it makes a safe space. It's a space. It actually carves out a space when you are together reading a story, even if it's like miles and miles and miles away from each other, it creates this singular safe space. Okay, I'm done well, lecturing now. What's <laughs> well, right. well, you know, Kate, I love to give away books and I love to share books. So can I tell you about four books that have helped me during 2020? And then I'm gonna mail those books to you. Oh, that would be Sound good. All right, because I love mailing you books like Lauren Castillo's Our Friend Hedgehog, which you, which you loved as much as I do. So the, the first book that has helped me this year that I'm gonna mail to you is All Because You Matter, which is a beautiful picture book. If I were visiting schools right now, I would always donate a copy to the principal because I think it's a book that every principal needs to read. Every principal needs to have on display in their office. Every principal needs to share during faculty meetings. So this book right here, All Because You Matter, has brought a lot of comfort to me during 2020. Uh, the second book is this one right here called Every Little Letter. And it actually reminded me a little bit of Stella because Stella, I believe you always say curiosity and courage. Yeah. And this book is about curiosity and courage. It's about kindness. It's about tearing down walls, not building walls. So Kate, I'm gonna mail you every little letter. I'm excited. And then the third book <laughs> is Twins, which you may have already read or seen, but I love this book so much. It's by Varian Johnson and illustrated by Shannon. Oh, Wright. I love Varian Johnson. 
And this is the type of book that you would walk into a classroom and you would see it all marked up and dog-eared because a child would be carrying this to school every single day in their backpack. It's the type of book that I believe kids will eventually get to pass from hand to hand, but they really will be passing it from heart to heart. Wow. I've read it multiple times and I've gotten something different out of it each time. So I wanna send you twins. And then the last book I'm going to send you is a companion to one of your favorite books. I love Billy Miller, book. which is called Billy Miller Makes a Wish. And I want to show you something really fun, Kate. When HarperCollins sent this book to me, they included Kevin Henke's socks. <laughs> <laughs> and I really, somebody out there at Candlewick, if you're listening, I need Kate DiCamillo's socks. <laughs> Wow. So is it fabulous? I can't wait. Okay, so this is the actual copy I read, which is a little bit marked up. So you'll, you'll see my note. That's In great. The opening, I wrote, reminds me of Kate and Louisiana Elefante. Wow. And this is why I'm going to read to you from, from Kevin Hinkis's note in the opening. He says, I continued thinking about them, the characters in, in the year of Billy Miller, after the book was published, even while I wrote my next novel, Sweeping Up the Heart, and I know you, yeah. I sent you a copy of Sweeping Up the Heart, Billy wouldn't leave me alone. Part of being a writer is trusting one's inner voice, following one's muse, if you will. So I followed my muse and did something I never thought I'd do. I wrote a second novel about characters I thought I was done with. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> So yeah. I'm going to send you those three books, which goes perfectly now into the next question, which All is right. from Tony. And Tony asked something I, I hadn't realized when I read the, the Three Rancheros trilogy. This is what Tony asks. In your trilogy with Ramey, Louisiana, and Beverly, telephone calls are a big part of the stories. Their calls reveal some of, their most, some of the most desperate parts of the story, but also where the corner turns. Was the telephone a big part of your childhood? That is, I can't, I, I'm astonished by that question. <laughs> and this is the kind of question that I, I, I feel like you could write a graduate thesis on that because I have never even thought about that. But of course, telephones were a huge part of my childhood. You know, it, it, it was a different time. And, you know, it was it was the time of it was a big deal to make a long distance call. Um, it was, you know, if, if you were calling somebody from Georgia to Florida or from Pennsylvania to Florida, it was it was a production. You know, it was going to cost money and sometimes you couldn't do it. You had to call collect. So there's an emotional urgency to that that doesn't exist anymore in, in the era of, of cell phones. And so it's really interesting to consider that I like put, that there, there are these emotional pivots around the phone calls. I, I will have, Tony, where I, I'll have <laughs> yeah, to- Yeah, I don't, I, it didn't say where Tony was from. Yeah. But I, had, I mean, as you know, I, I've read each book multiple times and I had never connected that before. And, and, and had thought about how the phone call, like the phone booth in Beverly especially, and then, you know, ah, so thank you, Tony. Yeah, thank you, Tony. And also I wanna say John and Tony that um, books themselves are like those phones when I think about it. It is this, you've got this chance 
here and you know something that is so small and finite to put your heart right and so it's just like it's a way to connect and and time is limited and and you have to put the whole of yourself into it and in a weird way books are like old-fashioned phone calls in that respect you know it's just like they well, really they mattered also in stella and in your newberry acceptance speech for floor and ulysses you talk about your mother calling you home for dinner and of course it's not on the phone but the whole that feeling of being called and anticipating that call yeah, really yeah that's nice oh, so people out there are going to be writing doctoral dissertations <laughs> <laughs> How about this? Tony, so, <laughs> Tony, you, you, that's, it's a beautiful point. So, okay. All right. I, I'm on it. I'm on it. So Kate, I told you about four books that I have really helped me in 2020 and that I'm excited about. And I know right before we started our, our meeting with everyone, you held up some books that are near you. So could you tell us about some of the books that you oh, really sure. love? Yeah, uh, this, this, um, we both love. And this, oh. I, I, I was saying to you before we started, this is Lauren Castillo's Our Friend Hedgehog. Um, it, it embodies comfort. Um, and it is a book that will, uh, that you, you can hold, but that holds you back. And so it is, and it is just, it's a wonder. And uh, I don't, it does, uh, is it an easy reader, John? Is that um, what you call well, it? Well, I, I would call it like a beginning chapter. It doesn't really fall into any category. And that's the thing, like, like at, you could say it's kind of like Because of Winn-Dixie, like Dales of Deckerwood Drive, like Mercy Watson, but it's its own unique thing. Yeah, I'm not doing happens. a good job explaining it. I think Lauren is out there maybe, so maybe she can explain Lauren, it you can tell us what it is. I'm not good with labels, but here, <laughs> um, I, I love this anniversary edition of the Watsons Go to Birmingham 1963, which um, this book was pivotal, pivotal to me becoming a writer um, because I used to work at a book warehouse um, uh, and I was uh, on the third floor where all the children's books were. And this was the first novel for kids that I read as an adult. And, um, and it is... But didn't, didn't you take it home and you typed out? You typed out passages from it? I, I, I typed up a whole chapter to see, okay, how long would a chapter be? And then, okay, how long would a whole manuscript be? So I like how I did this. You typed it out. Yeah. <laughs> and this but is a beautiful anniversary. Kate, did I ever? I'm interrupting you. I'm sorry. Did I ever? Did I ever tell you about when I first read because of Winn Dixie yeah. where I was? All right. So yeah. I was in college and I was working at Barnes and Noble in the children's section. I worked there for three years. And it was right when Because of When Dixie came out and I read the almost the entire book during a shift. I hid, I hid in the back, like under the shelves, like behind the shelves. And anytime they, they, I had a moment, I would read and then I would pretend like I was working, I would read. And so I think over two shifts, I read the entire book. I then did buy it after I finished reading. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that's like, I would, that's what I would do on the floor of the bookman is I would, I would go off into a corner and read. And, and it was, it was like a free education. I mean, I just read my way through all these great books. Um, and John, I don't know, did this come out this year? Last year. So, but it's Last really year. But I, I, uh, Jason Reynolds, everything that Jason Reynolds does is amazing. Um, but it's so much of his his storytelling in his heart can be summed up in, uh, I have this page marked, I can never let it, and it, 
at the end of the book and of his acknowledgments. And, and I just want to read a, a, a short Please. sentence from there. So this is where he's thanking everybody, to my folks and my siblings, to the dogs we ran from, the bicycles and bus stops, the ice cream trucks and parking lot carnivals, corner stores and barber shops, to all the colorful neighborhoods and all the colorful kids making the journey home. I love you. I like you. I ask you, how are you going to change the world? He's so, he's yeah. so amazing. He's yeah, amazing. it's just, and, and then you had sent me this. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> and boy, well, this is a time to, to make sunshine, right? And, I and, did that the other day, Kate. I said something like, we all needed to find more ways to make sunshine in the year 2020. And Ryan, helped, Ryan Hart helped us. Yes, yes. So uh, all just like, but you know, this is the other thing. And we said this when we were doing our practice session for this. And I just want to make this point that for you and for me, books are our go-to for comfort. Um, and it's just naturally what I gravitate towards. And there are people who might not be, that, that might not be the first way they look for comfort. Um, but now is a good time to discover what comfort is available to you in books. So it might not be your first love, but it can be one of your loves and one of your ways to comfort yourself in this time. Because when you're reading a book, whether you're reading it you know, on Zoom with a class or you're reading it alone by yourself, it just naturally, there's something in you that pushes outward. And, 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 and so it, 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 it pushes you out into the world. And just by that, it's odd because you're sitting alone reading a book, but it connects you with the world. And so this is a good time if you're not a reader to give reading a chance and to think, okay, let me see if I can find some comfort in myself in, in a book. So I just wanted to-, to, to make I keep petting my heart. Kate <laughs> makes my, as you would say, my heart more capacious every time I'm with you. <laughs> So I want to get another question from the audience. And this question comes from Beth, and she's a children's librarian. And her question is as follows. Your book, Because of Winn-Dixie, was a balm for my soul when I experienced the loss of my little brother to cancer at age 13. What books have been a balm to your soul during your own seasons of loss throughout your life? Oh, uh, well... What a beautiful, what a, uh, thank you for um, telling me about that. And uh, there have been so many books that have been bombs at different times. As I said, I woke up in the middle of the night thinking about Charlotte's Web um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I, it's funny because I haven't thought about this for a long time, but I used to um, always have a copy of All Creatures Great and Small by uh, uh, the bed. Uh, and when I couldn't sleep uh, uh, and, and I was too worried, I would uh, pick up James Harriet and, and just anywhere, read any one of those stories and, and, and feel comforted. I go back uh, again and again to uh, the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. There's so much comfort in, in there. And uh, I have to say that um, I, I absolutely love some of the books that I read still when I was a kid, um, Cricket in Times Square and um, 
21 balloons. And, uh, and then uh, there, there are short stories that I reread all the time. Eudora Welty's short stories give me a huge amount of comfort, so. Well, thank you, Kate. And a book that has always given me a lot of comfort is The Tale of Despero. I read it aloud when I was a fourth grade teacher, when I was a third grade teacher. And I think you had, we had said during our practice session that you were up for reading a passage from The Tale of Despero. Oh, you know what? Today. I did say that and then, and then I didn't bring Despero up here. <laughs> I'll show you then. I'll just show you. I have a, a limited edition of Despero. <laughs> I forgot about I forgot about Despero. Why I thought about Despero is because darkness is so much its front and center. And the, I mean, the, the very first um, uh, thing is uh, the, the opening thing before the, even the first chapter is uh, the, the world is dark and light is precious. Um, and you, you must, you know, I'm telling you stories, you must come closer and trust me, stories are light in a dark world. And that's why, I th and I still believe that so, so much. So John, I'm sorry, it's downstairs. No, I'm sorry. I mean, I could run down there. No, no, no. no I, I was, I was enough. I, was just, I needed a way to show my Despero doll and I did, <laughs> I accomplished that. So Tale of Despero was made into a movie because of when Dixie was made into a movie. And it was announced just recently that Flora and Ulysses is coming to Disney Plus. I wrote down the date on here on February 19th, 2021. And then the Tiger Rising, they just, they recently wrapped up the filming of that. And then I think it was this week, this has been a very long week, they announced that Netflix is creating an adaptation of The Magician's Elephant. And last night, I watched an interview with you on Candlewick's YouTube channel about what? the Tiger Rising. It's up there about the, the about the Tiger Rising, and when you visited the set, I believe last year. And in the a conversation about the Tiger Rising movie, you say the following: You say every time, every time you see your books created on the put onto the screen, it's a profound surprise and a gift. So can you talk about, you know, having had because of when Dixie made into a movie, Tale of Despero, and then soon you'll have three more of your books adapted for the screen. Yeah, it's like, it, it, <laughs> just to hear you rattle them all off, it doesn't even seem possible. It doesn't seem possible. I, I always say, Kate, I will eventually write your biography. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sign you up, John. I sign you up. You know how boring I am. But you know, it's it it is a surprise every time because it's like it goes back to getting up uh so early in the morning when it's dark, right? So that you're you're sitting alone in in the dark and quiet, writing uh, a story that there's a part of me that is still surprised that the the story gets turned into a book and then that people read the book. But then there's this other thing that happens with a movie where it becomes, you know, large and you're, and then collectively you're all watching it together. So it's just like, it's kind of, I can't get my head wrapped around it. But I, I do have, you know, it, it's funny because when I, I didn't travel as much as you, but I was out a lot in the world and um, there were always questions about the movies and why is the movie different? And, and I, I, in a room full of people, I'll always say, okay, how many of you, when you're reading a story, see it unfold as, as you're reading it, you see it in your mind's eye. And, and invariably, 
it is three quarters of the room that raises their hand, which is exactly what the science says. It's like about 70% of us. So that means then that 70% of us as we're reading a book, we have our own personal movie of it in our head. And so it becomes, a, it, there's no way that anybody is gonna make a movie that looks exactly like your vision of a book. And so it, it, it's, it's humbling and it's wonderful to watch your stories. It's kind of like having kids. They go off your stories and they have a life, a different life without you where somebody else reimagines your story. And I think it's a spectacular thing, not the least of which because so many people will find their way to the book who would never have found their way to the book. They find their way to the book because of the movie. And um, last, I believe it was last week, this cover was revealed and the movie poster was revealed and I shared it on Instagram and three different people said, posted, that this is how they imagined you looking as a child. <laughs> you know, it's funny because this, I got to, I got to see a screener um, and uh, and um, I got to share it um, with like four friends. We watched it in a socially distanced way, and that's what that's that's what my friend said. Oh, that's 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 what you look like as a kid. But did, did you think that as well, or was it somebody saying it? Uh, that I didn't think it because I can't see myself. <laughs> but this actress. It just she is phenomenal when I, I when I went to the set and um, it just it's just it was mind blowing to watch her work. She is amazing. And the movie is fantastic. So and do they yell out holy bagumba a lot? <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It happens. But it is it, so funny and it is so heartfelt. It's really, really good. It's wonderful what they did. Some more questions from the audience because we're almost out of time. So this question comes from Natalie and she asks, what do you do to flesh out your characters and get to know them? Is it something you do before writing or as you write? And do you generally start with a character or do you start with a situation? Ah, uh, it's a great question and it's process and I love talking about process because process is different for everybody. And John, you've probably heard me tell this story before, but I remember, once I was doing uh, a school visit, big auditorium filled uh, with kids. And uh, we were talking about writing and how um, I didn't, I, I never knew where a story was gonna go when I started it. Um, and uh, this fifth grade boy stood up and said, what if you're in a class um, where uh, the teacher says that you have to outline a story before you can write the story, you have to turn the outline in first. And uh, I said, is, is your teacher in the auditorium right now? <laughs> and he said, yeah, that's her right there. And so I turned to her and I said, I have to tell you that if you had fifth grade me in your class, I would not be able to write a story that way. I could write an outline, but I couldn't turn that outline into a story. So thank you for saying it, that. Thank you for individual. Thank you. It is yeah. you are on your And you are protecting that child as a writer. Yeah. And it is totally, it's totally your own journey. There is. So when somebody is teaching somebody how to write, the most important thing that you can do is to inspire them, right. And to encourage them, but you have to kind of find your own way as you're doing it. So anyway, back to characters. So sometimes people will say, speak to us about character development. And it's like, I don't know how to do it. I, what I do is I, I always have the character when I start 
usually the character with an image. And then, and I, I don't try to flesh the character out. I just start writing. I blindly just jump in and follow this, this image with the character. And, and I have no idea where it's going to go. And that, uh, as one of my best friends says, is what works for me. That does not mean that's what will work for you as a writer. And so I discover the character as I go along. I don't sit and, and make character um, sketches. Character sketches work great if that's the way you work, so. Can I ask you another process? Since you love process questions, I have another yeah. one for you. All right, so this one is from Dana. And her question is, you don't shy away from sad or tough scenes in your books. What strategies do you as an author employ to help your characters and thus your readers work through grief in healthy ways? Wow, you know, again, this goes to that thing um, of not planning and not, and also I, I, I'm not being disingenuous when I say this, not knowing what I'm doing. So that means, by, by that, I mean, I am not looking directly at that sadness and the grief and the sorrow. I know that it's there. And, and part of what writing a story gives to me is uh, it lets me bring that sadness up, give it shape, and, and, and also put it next to light. And, and, and it heals me to tell the story, to bring those things up. But if I sat down thinking I'm now going to deal with this grief in a healthy way, I, I would mess up. I'm just trying to, to be honest in telling the story. And I'm also following what my own heart needs. You know, I'm kind of excavating my own heart. Oh, and I, in, your, in your Newberry, I keep coming back to your Newberry acceptance speech from Florin Ulysses because I've memorized it. You <laughs> talk about um, uh, excavating the grief in your heart. And, and that's something that story so often helps me do. And I don't even know, like I have this grief but experience, with, with reading about a character who experienced grief, I'm able to excavate grief of my own. So Right, thank and you. that also goes, John, to that whole thing about like when, when uh, as a teacher or a parent, you're reading aloud and, and when you finish for the day, it, instead of asking questions about what happened in the story or why it happened, rather, how do you feel? Because it's like when you're when you're reading about somebody else's grief, it does help you understand your mm. grief, and it also under, helps you understand that you're not the only one grieving. And that's that's empathy, and mm. that's community, right? When you know that you're not alone in something, um, and that's the light of the stories. Thank you for for help for helping so many of us heal our hearts through your stories. I want to end with two questions from children, but before those questions, I have two questions of my own. One of which you might not be able to answer. I think yeah. <laughs> you'll be able to answer the first one, which is: Can you tell us a little bit about the next book in the Tales from Dekawu Drive series, which comes out next year? Franklin Endicott and the Third Key. Yeah, so, so Frank is um, Stella's brother. And Frank and I uh, share a similar trait, which is that we worry a lot. And so this book is about Frank coming to terms with his worrying and um, putting some of that worrying down. 
And so it was like a really fun book to write um, because again, it's that thing where I'm dealing, I'm, I'm digging around in my own heart and, and, and walking with Frank through his worries helped me with my worries. So that comes out in the, in the spring, right? I don't know the date. I think it's June. I didn't write it down. Okay. <laughs> I'm failing. I'm failing. <laughs> I, think, I think June. I think June. I've not read it yet. I can't wait to read it, Kate. But in the uh, cover of uh, my Christmas before Deuce. I do, you'll get a copy. <laughs> that, that's happened a few times where I get your books before you. But uh, all right. So you have a novel coming out next year as well, um, yeah. illustrated by two-time Caldecott medalist Sophie Blackall. And are you are you allowed to tell us anything about it? I, I know nothing about it. I don't think that I I don't think that I am. The only thing that I know for a fact I can say is that Sophie Blackall is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember Kate and I, when we were at Wild Rumpus together last May, you said something which I tucked away in my heart. And when I saw the announcement for the book, I texted you and I said, "Was this what you were talking about at Wild Rumpus?" But you couldn't say more than like the three words that you shared. So I'm looking forward to reading it next year. I can't wait for you to read it. All right, let's end with two questions from children. The first is from Mimi. And Mimi is very excited to be here today, Kate. Uh, she loves Because of Winn-Dixie. And she read that in an interview that you felt that you left Opal at a good spot. But she and her mom do believe there should be another book because they want to meet Opal's mom. So are you still where you were in that interview of there will not be a sequel, you are done with their story? And then they also say they love the Mercy Watson series. Oh, okay. Mimi, I do feel like, I, I mean, and like, it's really nice that you like, I, it, things change. And that's what your question reflects. It's just like, so yes, I, I, I have always thought that's that. I did leave her in, in a safe place. I'm not worried about her. But what I've learned over this journey of 20 plus years of writing is, is just kind of like what you said with Kevin Henke's and his note. You don't know when the characters are going to come back and ask for something. So Opal is not asking for something right now, um, but... I'm always listening and like Kevin uh, Henke said, I'm always, I'm listening to that inner voice. And so if Opal comes back and wants that kind of book, I, I promise you that I will do it. So. Well, and I love you, what you, you had shared in a speech, I think at um, Columbia College about how Louisiana wouldn't leave you alone. Yeah. She kept coming and she kept saying, you're going to write it all down so that they know what happens to me, right? I think Wait. that's what it was. <laughs> and like it, grabbing me by the collar, basically. Yeah. yeah. And then I love that you said that when you were working on Beverly right here, it was like Beverly sometimes was hiding behind a bush. And yeah. she, like, she'd come out just a little bit more, whereas Louisiana was like, tell my story. I love, love me, lovely, love me, see me, see me, see me. Yeah, so. every character is different. Every character is different. And you're always listening and waiting, you know? Oh, all right, Raya gets the last question. Okay, she is Raya. nine years old. When you were little, did you ever want to do any other jobs other than become a writer? When I was little, um, I never even considered being a writer because books to me were the most important thing in the world. I thought they were magical. I didn't think that human beings wrote them. And it's one of the things that I loved uh, about going out and meeting kids was saying, here I am, the biggest mess in the world, 
but yet I get to do this magical thing. And it, and that's it, it. So if somebody wants to write, I am living proof that you can do it by sitting down and doing the work, but it's not what I wanted when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I thought I was gonna be a veterinarian. So it wasn't until college that I, I decided I wanted to write. And can I just say, it's the best say, job in the yeah. world. The best well, job in the world. And your gift, your stories are the best gift to all of us in the world. Kate, do you have any last words that you wanna share with everyone out there about hope and solace and love through story? I do, I do. I would like to say whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult, um, if you can find a book somewhere in your house and then take it and read it to somebody else, even if it's uh, the dog, uh, my dog will listen to me when I read. So the best thing that you can do to help your own heart and to help the heart of somebody else is, is, is to read them a story aloud. You can do it over the phone. You can do it over FaceTime. You can do it over Zoom. You can do it from the kitchen into the living room. Read somebody a story. Oh, thank you, Kate. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This was our, my last you, virtual event of 2020. And I'm so honored that I was able to be with you. I cannot wait, Kate, for me to come back to Minnesota one day so that we can go to the Wild Rumpus bookstore and we can browse the shelves and we can laugh. Laughing with you is the best medicine for my heart. I thank Larry for inviting us and Leah for inviting us here today. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Leah. Thank you to everyone on your team. And thank you to everyone who joined us today. Um, I know that my heart is leaving much happier. <laughs>